Please open your Bibles up again to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2. We've been going through this section of Acts for the last few weeks, and we've been looking at the early church and the things that it continually devoted itself to. Or rather, herself. Since the church is revealed in Scripture to be the bride of Christ, we say she and her about the church. And Acts 2 tells us that these first Christians, this first Christian church, was continually devoting itself to four things. We've looked at the first two of their devotions, the teaching of the apostles and fellowship. And this week we're going to turn to the third devotion, of the early church. Now, before we look at that devotion, I want to remind us again of the central purpose and value of each one of these disciplines. These four devotions we're studying were the four main practices which down to today, still to the present, are here in the church and in our individual lives. And they are what God uses to lead us to maturity. A few years ago, or actually as I preach, probably a number of years ago now, for many of you, uh, when Joseph was a small boy, we had a friend of the family whose sister worked at Johnson & Johnson, and this was soon after the uh, extra-strength Tylenol mess, where some people died from that. And so Johnson & Johnson was in a very uh, strong PR mode, wanting to win back its customers and reassure everybody that it was the most trusted name in um, medical supplies or medicine in the country. Well, we visited her house, and she was an, a high-level executive there. And uh, she was very generous, very kind, and she inundated us with all kinds of J&J products. She gave us uh, those little cotton swabs, and she gave us I don't even remember all the things she gave us, but there were a ton of things. But the thing I remember particularly, and she did give us extra strength Tylenol, of course. That was the one thing she did give us. Uh, and we did not die. Um, but the one thing I remember particularly was that she gave us an educational toy. Now, I've never been a big one for educational toys. I think that it doesn't get better than a ball. But she gave us a thing that had different colors, different shapes, and it moved. And uh, if I had been a child, I would never have played with that thing. Um, it looked way too complicated. Um, but with it came the more important thing, and that was a very large booklet explaining to the parents all of the different things that the child would learn by playing with this toy. And I think that was the real point of that toy, was that the parents could put this in front of their child and feel like it was almost the same as paying for a private school education. You know, the, as the child sat there and slobbered on it and hit it with the back of its hand, the parent would read this book and say, oh, his motor skills are getting better. You know, but it went on and on and on and on about all the different things this child would learn by playing with this toy. I'm very happy to report that our youngest at the time, who was age-appropriate for the toy, was Joseph, and it didn't even interest him. He continued to play with his balls and his teddy bears. Uh, that toy, I don't know where it is. It's probably in the attic or in the basement somewhere. 
if you like educational toys, there are a number of stores in town you can go to. One is over on Pete Ellis Drive, and you can buy stickers and, and get the booklets. But I use this as an example of the priorities we have with our children. Um, when parents have their child, and especially their first child, they're very intense about giving that child everything that child needs to be successful in life. And so that, that, that whole market of educational toys is not hurting. Many people buy those toys and they read the books and they are devoted to their child's training. Um, from the time their child is little, they want their child to succeed. And if you have any question about this, get involved in any of the sports programs in town. Yesterday, during Joseph's, or Taylor's soccer game, I was sitting between a number of soccer mothers and they were reporting to each other by cell phone how this particular volleyball game was going and uh, there were just a whole bunch of sports things going on. This one was riding in some bike thing and this one was playing volleyball and we even got a report of how his or her daughter was doing in volleyball and then we went to high jumping into this coach. There's a whole world out there. And it's a very serious world, don't you forget it. And so you can go all year doing nothing other than sports for your child. It doesn't bring in instruments, uh, music. It doesn't bring in preparing your child to take the SAT. Uh, it doesn't bring in what kind of television your children watch. And you think about it, and it, it doesn't bring in food. You know, these parents that give no food to their children except the or no sugar to their children except the sugar of um, honey and uh, oranges, and, uh, but no sugar, you know. They would never give them soda pop. Now, if your mother's like that or you're like that, that's fine. But think about our priorities with our children. Now, as I was preparing to preach, I got thinking about my priorities with my children. And... I thought, you know, it's, it's very interesting that if you go back in time and you look at the priorities of previous generations of Christians with their children, many times the whole life of the child was a conscious instruction in leading them to the cross of Christ. Uh, if you read books about the literacy of colonial America, they say the highest literacy the world has ever known. The whole basis of that literacy was to teach the children to read so that as they grew up they could read the Bible. It wasn't so they could read Superman comic books, but it was the Bible. And uh, now I want to ask you a question. If we are this intense with our children, their diet, their sports, their music, their intellectual development, their vocabulary, um, protecting them, think of all the things that parents do for their children in America today. And more so when we only have one or two because then you can give all of your uh, manic obsessiveness to just those one or two. The good thing about having ten was after a while you just shoved the pacifier back in the mouth without sterilizing it, <laughs> you know. But one or two children. All right, now think about this. If we are the children of God, then wouldn't it make sense that our Father would have a curriculum for us? And wouldn't it make sense since He's perfect and we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, that God would give perfect educational gifts, perfect maturing gifts, perfect care to us, that we would grow into maturity for Him, which is the maturity 
of Christ-likeness, being like Jesus Christ. You see, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, give good gifts to us as children, every gift we need to grow into maturity? Now, what are those gifts? Well, they were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, you can add on to them. We saw this morning in the text in Corinthians that uh, giving was a central part of the life of the church. It, It consumed many, many, many verses in the letters that went back and forth between the first Christians. So the way we give, giving cheerfully, this is part of God's curriculum for us as his children as we grow into maturity. What kind of priorities do these things have in your life? Think of your children. Think of the children you may have in the future. What will your priorities be? Then think of God and say, as a child, am I submitting to the curriculum of my father for my maturity? Now, if I were to ask you how you're submitting to your parents' curriculum for your maturity, I'll bet that for many of you, everything you're doing in your life right now is completely aware of your parents' curriculum for you, all right? Whether it's who you're dating or who you're not dating, I would hope that this has some connection to what your parents have said to you. Radical thought, right? Listen, even if your parents are unbelievers, get their advice about the person that you consider marrying. They're not dumb, and they do love you, most of them. Um, Think about their curriculum for you. You're at school, you're taking, you have this major, your father says, oh, don't give yourself to music, it's worthless. Well, how are you going to earn money from that? So then you become a business major, right? Or math, or chemistry. Um, What about the issue of where you go to school? Uh, They provide, so now, even if you're a child and you can't think about being a parent at this point, think of how your life is centered by your parents. Now come back to God. God is your father. He's the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And he has a curriculum for you. What is it? Now this morning, I want to turn to the third. Devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And you're doing well because you're here and I'm preaching and I'm preaching from the word. So that's that devotion. Fellowship, I hope you came early and will stay late. And I hope those of you especially who are newcomers will stay for the lunch. And I hope you won't just talk about... uh, And I don't know whether they won or lost yesterday at the football game. Um, I hope you'll talk about your souls and your discouragements and your encouragements, your fears, your hopes, the things that matter eternally. And not to say that there's anything wrong with small talk, but I hope that fellowship will be something you are devoted to. Now, third, the breaking of bread. Now, before I get into this, I want to deal with a common error. Uh, It's our error in our day to be perpetually... um, uh, informal, uh, postmodern, all right? And I kind of see the two of those as being synonymous. Uh, everything is low-key today, all right? And when it comes to the issue of the Lord's Supper, our natural postmodern, informal, uh, low-key expectations come to this table 
And without even thinking about it, we look at this table and we say, well, what on earth does this have to do with what it says in Acts 2? They were devoted to the breaking of the bread. And then we start talking about things like agape meals. And we say, you know, the early Christians didn't get a bunch of uh, brass stuff or put it on a table and have symbolic. I mean, this, the bread here is so small that you can't even get a meal out of it. And it's not even wine, it's grapefruit juice. Or not grapefruit juice, grape. <laughs> it's not grapefruit juice. I mean, there, there are some places we won't go. <laughs> we won't go to grapefruit juice. <laughs> and many people that would be howling at me right now because they say that we shouldn't use grape juice but only wine. So there I'm, I'm condemned. Anyhow, they'll point to this meal and they'll say, uh, you guys, this doesn't have any resemblance to what Jesus did with his disciples in the upper room. It doesn't have any resemblance to what the early church did. It's not an agape meal. Uh, and why would you dare to say that this is the modern counterpart to they were devoted, they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread? And what I want to say to you is that first of all, if you look through the book of Acts, you will see that there are times in the book of Acts that the, you can actually see the Holy Spirit moving Christians from one point to another. Uh, all spiritual change, all dispensational change doesn't happen in an instant. Now, it is true that uh, the veil in the temple was split in two just like that. That was instantaneous change. But a lot of the transition that that rending of the veil of the temple symbolized happened over time. And one of the things we see with uh, the Lord's Supper is that as you read through the New Testament, you see the kinds of temptations and sins that the Christians brought to the Lord's table. You look in First and Second Corinthians, you'll see that the church in Corinth had a lot of trouble, uh, a lot of disagreements, a lot of uh, scandalous sins going on in it, and an absence of the proper reverence and awe at the Lord's table. And there are certain things that have happened through the centuries in the church that have been set in place, not immediately, not there in the upper room when Jesus first uh, commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper, but in time, through the years, the church has seen fit to protect against certain abuses. And so, for instance, uh, if you look in uh, Scripture, you'll see that there was uh, much gluttony at the Lord's Supper among the Corinthians. And so then you ask yourself, why are the cups this big and the pieces of bread that big? And you can see that one of the reasons is that this protects us from having this meal be something where we're, we're, we're porking out, right? Nobody's going to get excited about the actual physical food at this table, right? Then look at everything surrounding it as we go through an explanation of it this morning. And again and again, what you'll see is that the church has seen fit to taking the breaking of bread, these early agape love feasts, the, the early uh, meal in the upper room with the disciples, and it has developed it to protect us from particular sins. So if you look at this table and you have a tendency to condemn it, I will uh, paraphrase G.K. Chesterton in saying, uh, it's very important that when you change things, you don't deform them, but reform them. 
And it's very uh, much our habit when we come to something that we have no patience for and it just seems completely wrong to just willy-nilly throw it on its ear and say, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. And the last century and a half of American history are filled with people who have read the book of Acts and other portions of the New Testament and said, we're going to restore the early church. All right? The restorationist movement. And we're going to do things the way the early Christians did them. Now, I want to be very careful here to not make you think that I'm saying this out of any vindictiveness or any feelings of insecurity. I'm not. But you don't know that. You'll have to look at my heart. But let me tell you something. When I go into churches on vacation where they've restored the early church's observance of the love feast, all right? And they do it every week. And guess what? The one thing I've seen in common in northern Indianapolis, down in Florida, and at other places, which I won't mention, is there's absolutely no warning at the table. Now, how does that work? that in an effort to restore the early church's practice, there is no awe, no reverence, and no fear at the table. Now, you might say, well, there is reverence. And I'd say, how can there be reverence if there's not one warning about the person who takes and eats and drinks without recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ in this meal places themselves in danger of being sick and dying because of that? Now, all I'm doing is quoting... The Bible to you. And so, again, what I want you to do is I want you to have a suspicion that all those who went before you are not ignoramuses. Just a suspicion. That's not much to ask, is it? That those who have come the centuries before us developed a wisdom that it wasn't all just protecting the prerogatives of the clergy. It wasn't all just clericalism. It wasn't all just the Roman Catholic, the mitre and the hats, all right? That some of them might have been students of Scripture and that they might have developed what they developed because they had a holy reverence for the things of God. So in other words, I'm trying to get you to at least give me a crack to edge into your prejudices and to allow me to do some work this morning to not just think that, well, this is an uptight Presbyterian thing, you know, and whoever did this was all about protecting reverends. Now, there might be more to it that. Just listen and see, all right? Now, let's open up to Acts chapter 2. And again, let's read our text. Acts chapter 2. It's the end of the sermon at the day of Pentecost. I'm going to pick it up again with verse 37. And this is the response to the preaching of that sermon on the day of Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit came on them. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, from the time of the first Christians to today, the Lord's table has been the very central act of family unity in the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord's table has been the very central act of family unity in the church of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to always think of a healthy, normal home. Well, I should maybe not say that today. Um, A healthy home. Um, as you come into the church of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to think of this as a house for the church. I, I encourage you to think of this as the meal. I encourage you to think of the Titus two women as the mothers. I encourage you to think of the elders and pastors and deacons as the fathers. I encourage you to think of the people in the pew next to you as your brothers and sisters. And all I'm doing is using biblical language and encouraging you to think and meditate on that language. As you go into a healthy home, you will see that the time of greatest unity in that home, if it's a healthy home, is gathered around the table. At that time, with the food at the center and with people in the circle, you have the sweetest thing that you can get in a family. All right? Now, I'm not saying that this is always the way it works out. I know it doesn't. I'm, I'm married and I have children, and unfortunately my children have a father, And there are times where I'm so hungry that it isn't sweet for the first 20 minutes. Um, Nevertheless, if there's going to be a sweet time, it definitely is around that table. And think of the symbolism that surrounds that table. The seating of the guests, the choice of where they go, the placement of the food, the care with which it's been set, the length of time that's devoted to it. I hope in your home that you don't allow the TV to rob you of that time. Even the point of those who are invited over going to the front door, welcoming them and ushering them up to the table, and then the fact that when somebody gets up, it's rude to just get up and leave. They're supposed to ask to be excused from the table. Just think of all that symbolism around a healthy, uh, happy family and home, and then come to this table and meditate on this table. This, as that is the central thing of a human family, this is the central act of devotion in the church of Jesus Christ. And here, when we gather around this table, we have the greatest sense of being united as a family and being centered on the things which are our redemption, namely the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to this table, I would like to spend a few minutes talking about the parallel between this table and another table 
if this table points back to the cross of Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament there was another table that pointed forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, and that table was what? It was a celebration of Passover. And I'd like us to think a little bit about Passover because I, I think it'll help us to properly approach this table and to properly appreciate this table. Now, there are four aspects of the Lord's Supper and the breaking of bread which we will focus on, each of which is a New Testament parallel to the Passover table in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews looked in four directions as they approached the Passover table. And we are to look in those four directions also. First of all, they looked back and we are to look back. Now, it was the first goal of the Passover celebration to remind the Jews of what? It was to remind them of their deliverance from the Egyptians by the hand of God. They had been in slavery. They had not had a future or a hope. Joseph was not remembered. And they were in bondage. And their cries went out to the Lord. And the Lord heard their cries. And the Lord reached down and He lifted them up out of their bondage. And they went through a period of time of testing and of suffering in the wilderness. But they were saved. They were saved from their bondage. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 12, you'll see a short excerpt of this account or of this reality. Acts chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, beginning with verse 21. This is the opening up of this Passover celebration. And beginning with verse 21, it says what? Exodus chapter 12. It says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you and he has promised... You shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. So here we have this essential part of the history of the Jews. And if you think today to this very day of what it means to be Jewish, you will see the Exodus at the center of their identity as a people. And this Passover celebration, still celebrated today by those who deny that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, this Passover celebration continues to look back to this time of their bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, They never omit the celebration of the Passover. It never stops. They never give it up. All right? They don't assume that everybody already knows the story, and so there's no use rehearsing that again. But they continue to celebrate this time. And each part of their meal 
was and still is today set up to remind them of this escape from Egypt. They ate bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter bondage their forefathers suffered in Egypt. And when it was time to eat the bread, each head of the household held up the bread and said, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate when they came out of Egypt. And just as the Jews look back at their escape from slavery in Egypt when they eat the Passover, we look back at our escape from our slavery to Satan and to sin and to death. Look with me at Romans chapter 6, please. The book of Romans, right after the Gospels. Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Here's a description of what the blood of Jesus has purchased for us. It says, verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, speaking of Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as the, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And so what we see here is that as the Israelites were rescued from slavery to the Egyptians, and there was no future and no hope for them, but only bondage, so we as Christians look back at the cross and the blood, and we say we were under the condemnation of Adam, we were under a sentence of death, we were slaves of Satan and of the own, our own lusts of our flesh and the pride of life, everything evil, until God saw and touched us and gave us the gift of faith. And at that point, we were released from that bondage. And so the truth is, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, despite all the talk and all the books and all the political philosophy about freedom and liberty, have absolutely no freedom or liberty because they are under the condemnation of Adam. They are sentenced to death. There is an eternity of hell that they look forward to. And each moment of each day when they exercise their moral choice, that moral choice is only bondage to Satan and to death. The most beautiful acts of art, uh, painting, of music, the greatest novels, no matter what it is that you say the human spirit has given issue to, the spirit is a spirit of death. And the only liberty comes through the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us through faith. And so, is that your testimony? Are you able to look back to the bondage that you were in until you believed in the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you remember that bondage? Or have you forgotten your first love? Why would He be your first love? He would be your first love because until that day when you first saw the light, you had no light you had no love that was truly love. You had no hope. You had no future. You were under the sentence of death. And so the Israelites, they look back. We are to look back. We start at the table by looking back to the bondage that we were in and remembering we had no name. We had no identity. We had no future, no hope, no liberty, no freedom. We were subject to death and we are in bondage to the evil one in this life. 
That was our condition. And that still today is the condition of all those who do not have their faith in Jesus Christ. We look back. Second, where else do we look? We look inside. The head of the Jewish household was not just to lead in the Passover celebration. He was not just to lead the family in living their deliverance from Egypt, but he was also assigned the responsibility of leading the family in searching for and putting away all of the leaven in the home. Now, the way he did this was, it was a symbolic act, but it, but it was based on reality. He would go through the home and he'd have in one hand a little candle or a torch or some source of light, and in the other he would have a pair of tongs, the kind that you use to flip the meat on the uh, grill, something that you can grab things with. And he would go and he would lead the family and going all through the home. And before they did this, they would have had something that makes even our spring house cleanings look tame. They go all through the home, cleaning the home in preparation for the Passover. But then the time would come when he would go through the home and he would hold the light and then he would hold the tongs. What was the goal? The goal was that he would find some leaven somewhere. And when he found the leaven, he would then pick it up with the tongs. He wouldn't touch it. He'd pick it up with the tongs and they would carry it away from the home. Now, why leaven? Well, leaven is, today it's yeast to us, but it's the thing that leads to decomposition such that there's actually a taste, all right, to our bread. And leaven is used all through Scripture to symbolize sin. So the Israelites look back to their bondage in Egypt and God's rescuing them and giving them liberty. And then they look inside to see where there was leaven in their home. And we look inside as we come to the Lord's table to see where there is leaven in our heart. Leaven stands for sin. You go all through Scripture and you'll see again and again and again, Jesus says to his disciples what? He says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. They can get confused and think he's talking about food, but he's not. And they realize he's talking about the wicked sinfulness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, beware of the corruption of of the yeast, of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And so as we look at the Jews going all through the house, symbolically purging the sin from their midst by looking for leaven, that agent of corruption, so Christians look inside of ourselves to see if there is any corruption in this as we come to this table. Why? Because it would be an act in which we did not discern the body and blood of our Lord if we came to this table liltingly, cheaply, superficially, um, you know, like you go into Disneyland or Disney World, you know, just flippantly and came to the table that is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ where the economy of eternity has been perpetually changed as each individual believes in the cross of Christ. We can't come to this informally. Now, we can come in blue jeans or shorts. It's not a clothes. Don't get this wrong. But it's our hearts. We come to this soberly. We come to this with reverence. Because here we meet our Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfectly holy, 
and who has died that we may be holy. So we come to this table and, and we say, well, the one thing that doesn't matter is whether or not I'm holy, because after all, we all know I'm not holy. Only Jesus is holy. And thank goodness He did His, His cross thing, because now I don't have to worry about my sin. That is to crucify Jesus Christ again. That is the grossest form of impiety. It is, it is, it is to crucify Christ again. We come to this table and we look inside and we examine ourselves. So then, says the Apostle Paul, let us examine ourselves to see if we discern the body and blood. Do we really understand what this table is? And if we do, how can we come here without confessing our sin? How can we love the master of this table and enter his presence intending? I mean, look at Judas. He's there at that table and he's about to betray our Lord with a kiss. If you see that being wrong, how much more today with all of history behind us and revealed in His Word to come to this table cheaply and not see the body and blood of our Lord. And so we are to purge leaven from our own hearts. Now I want to add a note here. Again, it's very common for us today to condemn those who as we see it, put up boundaries between this table and God's people. And particularly, we look back and we really smugly, with great pride and self-satisfaction, look at those communions, those denominations, those churches that have practiced something called closed communion. And, and we just think they're so ignorant. Didn't Jesus say, come, you know, and they say, don't come. Now, what am I referring to? I'm referring to churches which, in order to come to the Lord's table, they require you first to meet with one of the spiritual leaders of the church, the pastor, the elders, and to be examined in your own conscience. And then, in order to come to the table, you have to be a part of the group that the pastor and the elders have approved. Now, this was extremely common in church history. In fact, if you go on eBay, I might have mentioned this before to some of you, if you go on eBay, you will see that there is a thriving trade in what are called communion tokens. And the important thing now is uh, what part of the world they came from and what period in history they came from. But you don't have to go to eBay in order to find this historical weirdness. You can actually go to uh, parts of our own country, and you'll see it observed. Like, for instance, where I used to pastor in Wisconsin, there was a church in town called uh, the Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Church. It's a denomination. And if you go into the Wisconsin Synod, you will not be able to take communion unless you're a member of their church. They do not allow you to take communion. Now, if Roman Catholic priests submitted to their hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church most of us would not be allowed to come to the Mass and to take of the body and blood of our Lord. Uh, so many, many Christians through history have not allowed people to come just on the basis of their own judgment to the Lord's table, but they have had to have an examination by somebody else or they've had to have a membership in that denomination or in that particular church to come. Now, here's another interesting thing. If you think about the Southern Baptists, they do the same thing. 
you can't join the Southern Baptist Church if you've been baptized as a child in the Presbyterian Church, but you have to be baptized again in their church. And one of the most common things I run into as a pastor is people who move into a small town where the only vital Bible-preaching church in that town is a Baptist church, and they love worshiping there, but the time comes for membership. And they're told that their baptism will not be recognized. And so they have to make a decision whether they're going to give up their principles and go ahead and be baptized or whether they're going to not give up their principles and not have full communion with that church. Do you understand? And so don't be, don't be easily convinced that all these things are just, again, the protection of the prerogatives of the church's uh, leaders, the elders, the pastors. Let me tell you, no pastor enjoys meeting with people to hear confessions. Okay? I mean, think about this. What person enjoys changing their child's diaper? And that's the equivalent of being involved in dealing with serious sin. It is not a pretty thing. You get weary of it. Um, But you do love it because it's precisely at that point that you see so clearly the work of the Lord because it's not a natural thing for any man or woman to admit that they are a sinner. But you, it's not something that you just say, you know, you know I, I just can't wait to meet with somebody else and to hear how they have fallen into sin. It's not a fun thing. So don't, don't easily condemn church leaders who do celebrate something called closed communion where you have to meet with someone and be a member of something to get there. The reason they're doing that is not because they enjoy talking about sin. They're doing that because they realize the terrible risk and danger there is to Christian and non-Christian souls about coming to this table without discerning, without properly seeing the Lord's body and His blood. And they want to help all of us be very careful in coming to this table. Uh, I won't take the time to do it, but I have an excerpt from Martin Luther's works this morning. Well, um, let me just read a small part of it. He says this about coming to the Lord's table. He says, No one shall be admitted to the sacrament unless he has previously been to the pastor who shall inquire if he rightly understands the sacrament or is in need of further counsel. Now, that's Luther. And you say, well, what did Luther know? Well, let me tell you, a lot. More than all of us will forget in our lifetimes. And uh, what a wonderful gift to the church he was. Again, he says a few pages later, no one should be allowed to go to communion who has not been individually examined by his pastor to see if he is prepared to go to the Holy Sacrament For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.27 that they are guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ who receive it unworthily. So don't easily condemn, again, past centuries. It used to be that pastors knew that they were shepherds and needed to protect the souls under their care. It used to be that elders took great care on this matter. And not everything where we become informal and low-key is progress. Okay. Are you with me, huh? Can you allow yourself to have just enough suspicion of the modern mind to grant me that? Not everything that's more informal is progress. Okay. 
Look back, look in, look around. Now, this is the part that sits well with us today because we all want to look around. If you look at how churches are built today, they're always built around. All right? It used to be that churches were built like this so that the authority of the Word would be central. But now we are central. Okay? And don't worry, we'll make that mistake too when we build a church. I mean, it's not really a mistake. Why around? Well, because... The Bible teaches us that under the cross, the ground is level and the blood of Christ creates a new family. It creates new intimacy. It creates safety. It creates fellowship. So when we come to the Lord's table, we are one body. We are eating and drinking one cup. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is an act of unity. Now, this is the reason why you will not find us allowing people to uh, take communion privately. We do not allow the sacraments to be done in privacy. Even though it might be uh, easier for you if you are in uh, a little room being baptized without everybody looking on, we believe that the sacraments are to be community actions. And we believe that this table is a place of unity. And so when you come to this table... You are united with the other believers. And if you'll look with me at the book of 1 Corinthians 11, quickly, look at 1 Corinthians 11, you will see that the Apostle Paul is taking this church to task for a whole bunch of things in their use of the Lord's Supper. All right? And it's very interesting. What does Scripture fault them for? Not what do we fault them for, but what does Scripture fault them for? And you'll see here, beginning with verse 20, that the Apostle Paul is rebuking them and he says this to them. In verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. Why? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, this is the Bible. And what this is showing us is that they weren't even aware of the issue of unity. If one doesn't have enough money to even bring their food and the other is getting drunk, he's got so much money, how does that show the unity that the blood of Christ creates between us? It's a denial of that unity. And the Apostle Paul is very intense about that denial. Now, that doesn't make sense to us, you know, as long as we're all in the room together. And so what we do is we go to the opposite thing and we think that everybody in the room must eat the bread and must drink the wine exactly at the same time. Or we don't have unity. Well, no, it's not that. Again, it's not whether you wear shorts. It's whether your heart is filled with awe as you come to the Lord's table. And so the unity is the unity of eating and drinking together. And how hypocritical if all of us are sitting there and we're very careful to eat the bread exactly at the same time. And the husband said to the wife, I despise you in the car on the way to church. Or showed it. But he eats at the exact same moment she eats. Come on, laugh. I mean, you see, the point is our hearts. And the point is, we're not rich and poor. We're not male and female. We're not black and white at this table. We're not people at the university and cutters, okay? We are one. We are one in Christ. We're not old and young. We're one, all right? 
And that union is supposed to be palpable. You should be able to smell it in this place. You should be able to actually grasp the unity of the body of Christ. Because how perverse if Jesus dies for us so that we can be many and divided and schismatic and censorious and cynical and rich and poor and white and black. It's completely perverse. And so the Apostle Paul, it's like, wham, this chapter. I mean, this thing is like a blowtorch. And what is it all around? It's around the fact that they weren't united. We don't take that real seriously. We just think it's nice. No, it's commanded. They looked back, they looked in, they looked around, and then one other thing, and that is they looked forward. Now, why did they look forward? Well, it's a no-brainer. They looked forward because our Lord, when he first celebrated the supper, told them to look forward. All right? And if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see that it says that we are to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. We don't just look back and in and around, but we remember that this same Jesus who gave himself up for us on the cross one day will return. And so it was the habit of the early Christians when they finished eating this meal together, they would say Maranatha. In other words, even so come, Lord Jesus. And Jesus commanded that you are to keep doing this until I return. And isn't that our hope? What is your hope? Is your hope that you get a good degree and then you go out into the world and you're able to learn a lot of money so that you can have uh, a family and and then grandchildren and, and have a decent place to be buried? What's your hope? A good car? Tailgate parties at football games where they win? What's your hope? What do you live for? What do you live for? Well, Christians are through this meal to live for the coming of our Lord in power and in glory. We're to live for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Jews at the Passover meal always kept a place empty at the table and it was for Elijah. Why Elijah? Because Elijah was the prophet who would announce the coming of the Messiah. So there was a visible presence at that table of no one, but rather of the hope of the coming of the Messiah. And typically when we finish eating this meal, you know what we do? We sing a song of the glory of Jesus Christ in heaven. Our favorite one is crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing. And you see, we're looking forward. Now let me ask you this morning. Can you see the provision for our Lord in this meal, this breaking of the bread, this table, this cup, and this bread? Have you looked back to your bondage? Have you looked in and cleansed your heart? Have you looked around and do you love the people you're sitting next to and front and back of? Maybe you've never met them. Do you love them, those who believe in Christ? And are you looking forward to the second coming of our Lord? Let's celebrate this meal together. If the elders would come forward, please.